Welcome to Law Technology Now. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'll be your host for today. This is my 11th episode as co-host of the show. Today, we're going to talk about a really important development in the law. The Utah Supreme Court's groundbreaking reform called the Legal Regulatory Sandbox, which is designed to help make quality legal services available to everyone who needs them. Utah's reform is important, not just for the people of Utah, but as an example for other states to follow. Our guests today are three of the people who really led uh, this process to get to this reform in Utah. We have with us Utah Supreme Court Justice Dino Himonas, who led the process for the court, John Lund, immediate past president of the Utah State Bar, uh, who in his role at the State Bar helped uh, lead the process, participate in the process, and who will play a leading role in the new agency that has been created to uh, oversee, administer the reform. And Jillian Hadfield, a professor of law and strategic management at the University of Toronto and one of the world's leading experts in the regulation of legal services and who was an advisor to Utah in its work. We're recording this remotely, of course, because we're in a pandemic. Justice Jimenez is in Salt Lake City, Utah. John Lund is in uh, Carbondale, Colorado. And Jillian is in Toronto. And I am in my study in Wheeling, West Virginia. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors. Thank you to Acumas, patent and trademark renewal payments made easy. Find out how Acumas.com can take the stress out of annuities and save you money on European patent validations today. And thanks to Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at Logical.com, L-T-N, that's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com slash L-T-N. So one of the objectives of this show is to explore how we can make law work better for everyone. Utah's reform is designed to do precisely that. More specifically, it is designed to permit creative new approaches that will make quality legal services available at reasonable prices to all who need them. Today, we're going to examine this new model, why it was adopted, how it will work, and what its potential implications are for other states. So welcome to Law Technology Now, Justice Himonis and John and Jillian. So let's start with motivation. What motivated you in Utah, and I'll start with you, Justice Himonis, uh, to consider this reform? First of all, Ralph, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. In Utah, for the past five years, We've been single-minded in our effort to really narrow the access to justice gap. And we have tried to innovate in, in a variety of different ways, but that is the touchstone of what drove the court to investigate and ultimately adopt regulatory reform. So, John, do you have anything to add to that about the access to justice challenge? 
Well, I just think it's clear. But by, by the way, Ralph, thank you also for having, having me. I'm looking forward to this. And Justice Simona says it quite simply, but that really is the driver when you look at the percentage of people trying to navigate the courts by themselves, much less all manner of other uh, problems they have in their lives that are probably legal problems they may not even realize. If you were regulating barbers and only 15% of the people are getting haircuts, you'd say there's something wrong with the way we're regulating barbers. And, and that's essentially where we've been. So I think that's the driver. All right. And Jillian, you look at this across the whole uh, country. Can you share with our audience a couple of thoughts about this access to justice crisis? Yeah, so I think this has been a challenge that the legal profession, the judiciary have been aware of for decades, that we don't collect very good data on this. Uh, Somewhere north of 80% of the population really can't afford the kind of legal help that they need. One of the things I think that's so impressive about the efforts in Utah is a real commitment to collecting data. And I know that as part of the work here, I believe there was a survey done in, in one of the districts in Utah. Dino, you may remember the numbers better than I do, but um, am I correct that they were north of 90% of people showing up in Utah court uh, without uh, legal assistance in basic civil matters? That's right. So looking at adult courts in the third district, which is the largest district in Utah, including Salt Lake, Salt Lake Summit, and Tooele counties, and by adult courts, including small claims courts, uh, fully 93% of the people were unrepresented. Yeah, and, and that's what we see across the country. Uh, we see that in, in North America, uh, now that I'm living back in my home country of, of Canada, we see this really across the board. And as John points out, there's something really wrong when your legal services are only available to 10, 15% of the population. And that's a challenge, as I say, that the profession and the judiciary has been recognizing for quite some time, but has not until I think at this point, this is what's so important about, about Utah's move. Until now, there's been a lot of study panels there's been calls for greater legal aid. There's been calls for more pro bono, all of which is very important. But what Utah has done is said, it's up to us on the judiciary, in the legal profession to fix this problem. And they've just taken the first concrete steps forward on that, certainly in North America. And in many ways, it's a world leading model. So this is so important. I, I want to start with this so that everyone in our audience who is not familiar with the movements around the country for reform understands what is driving it. This is it. And I want to read something that the way the, the standing order that the Utah Supreme Court uh, issued in announcing the change we're going to discuss, because it, 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 to me it's just chilling and it captures a couple of statistics that every American should be concerned about. The court wrote, the access to justice crisis across the globe, the United States and Utah has reached the breaking point. As to how affordable and accessible civil justice is to people, the 2020 World Justice Project Rules of Law Index ranks the United States 109th of 128 countries. As to that same factor, out of the 37 highest income countries, the United States ranks dead last. This is a problem, and it's a problem that everybody, everyone involved in, in justice in the United States, certainly every, every judge in every court in the United States recognizes just the way we've described it. All right, so that's the starting place. Uh, I know in Utah, 
you tried to address, and you've already said it here in our conversation, Justice Jimenez, uh, you tried to address this other ways. Can you just give the audience a little idea of how you tried to address this problem in other ways? Sure. So, as uh, not just in Utah, but really across the country and elsewhere, um, we've been trying to volunteer ourselves across the gap. And by that, I mean having lawyers offer pro bono services. Uh, to, to echo what Jillian said, that's important. That's something that needs to continue. But we just need to recognize, uh, as I've repeatedly said, we cannot volunteer ourselves across the gap. We need market-oriented, market-driven solutions. We've also tried through funding Legal Services Corporation and other entities uh, to try to accept, to try to you know narrow the gap that way. Again, incredibly important, but we've just not dedicated the kind of money to that effort that's needed. Uh, Jim Sandman, uh, the the immediate past president of Legal Services Corporation, uh, threw out a statistic the other day that just stunned me. That is that we spend more uh, in the United States on our Halloween costumes for our pets than we did on legal services in, in these civil cases. So I don't want to minimize these other efforts. They're important. They're just not enough. Right. Well, you, you've said that about as well as, as anyone can. I want to read one other quotation from the, uh, the press release that, you, that the court issued that, that picks up on what you just said. Uh, this is a this is your quote, Justice Simonis. We cannot volunteer ourselves across the access to justice gap, as you just said. We have spent billions of dollars trying this approach. It hasn't worked, and hammering away at the problem with the same tools is Einstein's very definition of insanity, which proves you have a sense of humor to go with your leadership. So these are the predicates. We have a problem. We've tried a lot of things. And, and you know, to your point about continuing to try them, I, I spent a lot of my life in a large law firm, and we're proud of the pro bono work that we did, and we should be. And so should all of the other lawyers who dedicate their time without cost to helping those who need the help. We don't want to stop that, but that isn't enough to get, uh, make real progress on the problem that we have. So, you turned to reform of the rules that govern the practice of law in uh, Utah. So, to help the audience understand, what was it about the rules that you needed to fix? Or what, was, what is it about the rules that impeded innovation to help address the access to justice problem? From my perspective, a couple of things. One is the limitation on who can provide legal advice really just limiting any provision of legal advice in the United States to lawyers. And what I've been telling people is it's, if we were to draw an analogy, it would be like saying only thoracic surgeons could perform any type of work in the medical arena. Second is some of the prescriptive business rules that, that are set forth in the rules of ethics that, that really stifle the ability to innovate, limit capital, this is something, frankly, Ralph, that Jillian understands probably, not probably, Jillian understands and is written about um, and is the world's leading expert on. And she is, it was her speech in 2018, May of 2018, where John and I are present, that really, really was the, the place where this whole thing started. Well, so let's, let's go to Jillian 
next. Would you expand a little bit on, on this, the problem with the way we regulate lawyers in the United States when it comes to impeding innovation and, and achieving access to justice? Sure. Actually, you just captured it. What we do is we regulate, we, first of all, we regulate lawyers. And we say that all legal services must be provided by somebody who can get a law degree and pass a bar exam and become a licensee. And of course, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it makes, made a lot of sense in the early 20th century when we developed that, because that's the fundamental format in which legal services are being delivered. But we've wrapped around that a set of rules that constrain the way lawyers can organize the delivery of service, basically their business uh, organization rules. So we say to those lawyers, you can't work for a corporation that is providing services directly to the public. And you can't share revenues or profits with any a technology company, another kind of professional, anybody who's doing the work of trying to make that delivery service, uh, delivery of that service more efficient. And of course, that's a point that's been made repeatedly over the last, again, the last couple of decades about the impact of our rules of professional ethics when they have now expanded from really being about ethics to being about a business model. I think the real shift, and uh, Dino mentions this talk that I, I gave a 10-minute speech at a conference of chief justices of the Western region in Vancouver, Washington in 2018. Uh, and to be honest, I've been giving this message for a very long time. Hey, let's change rules. As we know, bar associations around the country have been reviewing that. And I think the shift was to say... It's not enough to just change those rules governing lawyers because there are legitimate questions about consumer protection. So the real problem with our licensing scheme is it licenses people. It doesn't provide for the licensing of, say, a technology company or a legal services company that can use all those economics tools, but that we can still say, okay, how are you doing this? We want some oversight about the quality of service you're providing. So the key problem is that our existing approach to regulating our legal markets, our markets that provide the help people need to achieve their legal objectives, has been highly focused on this kind of 19th century model licensing lawyers. And that's cut us off from all the ways in which we can reduce costs and increase quality with other tools. That's a complete description of what the problem is. Most people aren't aware these rules are, as you say, practically a century old, maybe older. They were created for a different time. Part of the problem with access to justice, of course, that we haven't, haven't even touched on, is that there's so much more law. Law is so much more in everybody's life than it ever was before. It's in every business's business. <clears throat> so law is more important, and it's more complicated, and the data makes it harder to comply with. And meanwhile, we have limited how the people who provide legal service can operate their businesses. So uh, the capital issue that uh, the, the Justice Homonis referred to limits uh, how able you are to afford investments that you need. Uh, the capital issue limits how able you are to experiment with things that don't work because all progress requires some experimentation and not all of those will work. All of that comes together to produce an outcome that, is, uh, that needs to be addressed. All right. John, anything to add on the, uh, the rules and, and why we needed to change them? 
the theme here that I think is, is important to bring out is we're talking about rules that are economic fundamentally and created an economic paradigm or create an economic paradigm. You know, if you'd said to people making movies, you know, you, you have to have a hard data system. You, you have to have a, an actual physical movie in order for it to be allowed. And that were a constraint. It would, it, maybe it would make sense if you were trying to sell plastic to people, but it, it doesn't make sense if you're trying to open that market. And, you know, we can see what's happened when without that kind of regulation, the market moves, the technology changes. And now, you know, movie content is delivered all kinds of ways. And, and in the end, that's ultimately better for the people that want to consume movies. And, and, that, and that's, that's really the same type of dynamic we're looking to explore, uh, you know, with this reform is to relax those, regular, those, those economically related constraints without doing damage to the important values that legal services need to have, you know, competency and confidentiality and, and all that, but, but make room for these other sorts of economic patterns to develop. As we will talk about, that's why as you proceeded in Utah, as you will now describe, you didn't lose focus on those issues of quality and protecting the public. You're looking for a way to improve access to justice without losing that. So let's turn to talking about how you did that. So my first question, uh, Justice Simonis, why do we call this a sandbox? Well, because that's we borrowed it from fintech. You know, the, the notion that a, sand, a sandbox is, is some place where in a regulated environment you can go and relax the rules and, and run certain tests and pilot programs. Um, not sure that if we were branding, um, you know, branding from scratch, that's the term that, that we would have used, but it is the term with which people are familiar. Right. Right. By the way, Ralph, my wife hates that term. She does not understand why we call it a sandbox, but I think it's very apt because it creates that image of a contained environment, you know, a safe, observable space where things can be tried. And if they don't work, what do you do in a sandbox if something didn't work? You know, you just wipe it down and you start all over again. And that, to me, that that does connote that sense that we're trying to make space for people to innovate, but in a way where we can at least follow it and watch it and control it. Right. I, and I think both those points are, are important, but it is something everybody will ask if they're hearing this for the first time. So Utah has done this groundbreaking advance and we call it a sandbox. Why is that? And, and both those are, are important answers. It, it is a way of thinking about it that's been used in very high stakes financial settings, but it's also, it has a connotation that makes sense, right? Just the one you described, John. All right. So um, Justice Simonis, a simple question. How will this work? How will the sandbox work? Well, people make application in, in order to come in and, and try to present their innovative product. You can be, you know, an old line firm with, with a new line product, or you can be a new line developer uh, with an old line product or with a new line product. You make application and the innovation office, which John is heading, will evaluate it according to a certain set of, of criteria make a decision about whether or not to recommend that that entity or individual and that product should enter the sandbox and be tested, and if so, under what conditions. 
right? They come to the court and the, the court will make their presentation. And if the court agrees, then these guys are up and running. And in fact, John, I think um, we've already approved five, right? We announced this just a couple of weeks ago and, and five are already up and running. So if you prove your worth in the sandbox, and by that, I mean, you don't harm the consumer, right? You're, you're, the consumers know worse off as a result and, and arguably better off as a result. There'll be a pitch made to allow them to exit the sandbox and to offer these legal services without running afoul of the unauthorized practice of law. In other words, they'll be you know, authorized to offer them as, uh, without necessarily having to be a lawyer. Right. So the, the rules that predated this reform continue in effect. If you're going out to practice traditional law in Utah, the rules are as they were. But, but if you've got an idea that you wouldn't be able to do under the current rules because you're using people who are not licensed to practice law, for example, as part of the delivery team, that would be one example, then you can apply for approval to proceed in that way, and then the innovation office will examine you and decide whether or not you qualify, and if you do, let you go, right? Yeah. Yeah. John can speak to it at much greater length about what's going on. He's he's the one that's had the boots on the ground. But at, at the 130,000 foot level, Ralph, uh, that's what's happening. So let, let's get closer to the ground with John. Now, John, you, you have been appointed to be the, the head of the innovation office. Right. It's a it's a group of 11 people appointed by the court. Uh, we have a certain budget. We have some staff. We have an executive director. And we have, to date, received 18 applications. So we are beginning our process, uh, and I can describe that in more detail for you, Ralph, how we're kind of assessing people. But uh, it's, a, it's a give and take with the applicant to try to learn as much as we can about what they're doing, what model of service they're contemplating. Are you going to use non-lawyers to give advice? Are you going to have non-lawyer investment? All those kind of questions and, and really drill into that. And then use that information to decide where we think they fit on a spectrum of risk. There's very simple proposals, like there's a fellow doing consumer bankruptcy law that just wants to have 10% ownership of his firm be given to his paralegal because she's apparently a critical part of the team. Odd as it is, he can't do that under the current laws, right? So he needs to utilize this permission to be able to do that. So we've assessed each of those against a a risk structure, which I can talk about in more detail if you like. And then we make that recommendation to the court. The other piece of it is they aren't necessarily cut loose in the sandbox. The, The real piece is that they're permitted to operate in the sandbox with certain conditions, primarily give us data. On, on what's happening with your model. Uh, tell us about error rates. Tell us about consumer complaints. Tell us about the total number of services you're providing. Lots of, lots of specifics. And that's because this is, this is an opportunity to study those and develop data. And we're very interested actually in having outside researchers look at that data and answer the question, you know, independent of, of our office, you know, is this, is this effective at providing services to uh, consumers? Which is a huge part of this model that is that's appealing to me, and I'm sure everyone else who's was participated in in deciding it. Instead of a prescriptive model that tells you 
before you begin how you must do things, you examine a proposal that wouldn't fit that the rules as they are. And if you determine that this is safe enough and, and should be approved, then they proceed, as you say, subject to reporting and, and you staying on top of what they're doing. And with each of these, you will gather data. Now you will have real information about how this works. And over time, as you proceed, that'll become substantial. And there'll be a lot of learning that comes from that. Let me just pause here for a second for a word from our sponsors, uh, and then we will continue. Increase productivity and profitability through Acumass.com. Acumass provides cost-effective and reliable annuities management whilst keeping customer satisfaction at the helm of the action. With 40 years of excellence in the field of IP renewals, Acumass understands how quickly annuities can become burdensome for clients who would prefer their focus elsewhere. Contact info at acumass.com or visit acumass.com to discover how you can benefit from a management solution tailored to your needs. Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use Logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. All right, we're back. We're talking today about Utah's groundbreaking legal regulatory sandbox. And we were, before the, we took our break, we were just uh, talking about how this process will permit Utah to gather data, and that data will be available for others who are studying the regulatory schemes that we have around the country uh, to, to use for the purposes of further consideration of how we might regulate the uh, legal services. I want to go back to the, what qualifies people to be within uh, the sandbox. First of all, th- this is a decision that, that is administered by the, the um, Innovation Office, but, but must be approved by the court before it's official, right? No different than lawyers. The, the bar processes lawyers, figures out character and fitness, makes sure they can pass the bar, but ultimately recommends to the court that they be licensed. And then there's a motion, and the court considers whether to grant the motion to authorize those people to practice law. Really the same thing is happening in parallel here with these entities that are coming to the Innovation Office. And so I'd like to ask you to say a little something more about the criteria you apply to evaluate them, and one of which in particular I'd like you to comment on. One of the questions, obviously, is this safe enough for you to take the chance of letting it go, letting it proceed in a way that's different from what the rules would permit normally? And the measure for that, how safe is it, is to what? What is the comparative when you evaluate it? The comparison is to what they're otherwise going to be able to have in the way of, of legal services for that particular problem. And in many instances, uh, given the access to justice gap that we're talking about, their alternative is DIY resources on the website or you know, talking to somebody they think knows better than they do. But it's, it's certainly not, we're not comparing these proposals to the model of a fully funded law firm, you know, being the alternative that the person has if they don't use this model, because, of course, that's not often the case, that that's the opportunity they have is to simply go hire a lawyer. 
Right. And that's a conceptually, I think, a very important point. Because, again, the casual observer often overlooks the starting place. As we talked about a moment ago, more people than not don't have access to justice at all. And so these, to be approved here, you, you need to deliver something that improves on the status quo. It doesn't have to be the ideal, although it may be, and it may, may be better than, okay. So they operate, this new entity operates, or, or this old entity with a new way, operates in the sandbox until a place at which you uh, prove it to go out of the sandbox? Is that the model? Right. And we are, you know, moving through this and, and learning as we go. But yes, there's a, there's a, it does seem that in the concept, there's a point out there. Let's take the, the fellow that's got 10% ownership, you know, to his paralegal. After we've collected data from that office for a period of time and gotten comfortable with what's happening in that office, we may be at the point or he may be at the point where he would like us to seek authorization from the court to be allowed to permanently do that or exit the sandbox and no longer be subject to the same flow of data and oversight that, that he would be continuing to be in the sandbox. So that would be seeking to exit the sandbox and be granted, if you will, a more permanent permission to do that. I mean, it would still obviously be subject to him keeping himself well-licensed and whatever other conditions would be there, but, but it would it'd be... I think, and I don't want to speak for the court on this or Justice Simonis, but I think the concept would be if that person's allowed to exit the sandbox, but then two years from now, the court just decides the whole sandbox innovation office thing was not a good idea and we don't want to do it anymore. That person who's been allowed to exit the sandbox is not going to be told you have to sell 10% interest in your ownership. You know, your, your paralegal has to be divested. They're, they're going to be allowed to continue in that model if they were allowed to exit. Indeed, I think that's that's explicit in the standing order, if if I recall. It is. Right. It is. Yeah, we don't want people. I mean, you can understand somebody is going to be loath to make a gigantic investment and have risk it in in two years if you know if if the court changes or people change their mind. So I think that kind of assurance is is really necessary. Ralph, do you mind if I just touch on something that that you've mentioned? And that John's mentioned, one of the criticisms have been that, well, you're, you're relegating a lot of these people to kind of second class legal status because they're not getting lawyers. And I just say, that's really a red herring, right? There's a lot of people don't need lawyers for their problems. There's a lot of evidence that non-lawyers can provide better advice for a lot of these problems or a lot of these issues as well. So uh, I think to quote Becky Sandifer, everybody deserves legal advice. Not everybody needs a lawyer. Right, right. So you're taking a very important step uh, in our way of thinking about legal service. I have for some time realize that what we're talking about is legal service. We're not talking just about lawyering. Lawyering, right? Lawyering's at, at the heart of a lot of this, but not at all of it. We, everybody in a big law firm knows that the projects you do, no matter how sophisticated they are and how high the stakes are, can be subdivided into parts. And many of those parts are, for one thing, are not the practice of law. They're bait stamping documents in the old days or whatever whatever people are doing. And, and we know that people can become expert in how certain courts work, a lot of things without going to law school. So what we've got to do is have a way that the people who need the legal service, whatever that looks like, can get it 
from whomever is qualified to do it. And you've created this sandbox that enables you to examine other alternatives and see if they are good enough, reliable enough, safe enough for the consumer. And if so, you can approve them in a different mix. And I just wanted to bring out for, the, for our listeners that you've got a two-step process. You, it's one thing to qualify to be in the sandbox. Then you watch them, you observe them, they re- report their data. At some point, you're persuaded that uh, they can, they're reliable to go on. And I assume once you let, let them out of the sandbox, even though they're still subject to regulation and so on, that will even further permit them to have the, the certainty that they can make more investment and uh, build it even better uh, because they know they they are somewhat permanent. Ralph, if I may, there's a, there's a bigger picture there, and I'm, I may be stealing some of Jillian's thunder on this, but we're going to start to see patterns. You know, once somebody's demonstrated that the model of having a paralegal have a certain percentage ownership in the firm is safe, we aren't necessarily going to need to continue to to test that and study that, you know, every time all over again. And that'll be up to the court, obviously, but it shines a light on the potential here that we start to develop standards around these things that are actually expandable beyond just just Utah if we start to build the data to demonstrate that that follows. Yes, Jillian, that's a hugely important point. Why don't you comment on that and and more broadly how this kind of arrangement that Utah has adopted can become... Uh, a source of information and learning uh, as other states follow it. So let, let me give you my take on what we mean by a sandbox here. I think of it as it's a sandbox for the regulator, for the regulator to experiment and to discover what works, what's necessary. And, you know, of course, every entrepreneur who's offering a new type of product, which because of our existing rules is pretty much the case with everybody here, they're also experimenting. Everybody puts a new product out there is always experimenting. Is the market going to like it or not? What's really important to recognize about the shift in the regulatory approach here is it's, as you've emphasized, Ralph, from a prescription, oh, you can't have corporate ownership by anybody other than a licensed lawyer, to an evidence-based approach to say, well, of course we care that we are making people better off and not worse off relative to what they would have in the alternative. And that's so new, we don't have very much data about what the risks are, what works and what doesn't, what kinds of protections work. So when I think about John and his colleagues uh, in the sandbox, I really think about it, that they're the ones with with the toys to play with to really explore, okay, we initially throw the the funnel wide. Pretty much anybody who's doing anything we haven't seen before has to register. They have to agree if they want to come in and play that they're going to uh, share some data and participate with the court and the office, uh, the innovation office in exploring that. But that's going to generate, as John's pointing out, the the evidence that we need to say, you know what, Well, we used to think that if there was any non-lawyer ownership in the firm, it was going to massively distort the way lawyers behave. But you know what? They're still under all their ethical duties. They're still professional. They perform well. We don't need much oversight there. We still need the licensing lever to say, hey, if we discover there's something wrong, we can step in. And I think that's what's going to be so valuable about this initiative. I think there's two things going to be super valuable about this initiative for jurisdictions uh, really around the world. Uh, One is generating that data and those best practices. So, you know, 
John is going to be able to talk to other regulators who are looking at this in other jurisdictions and say, well, we discovered the 10% ownership by a paralegal. Don't worry about that one as long as you've got you know, your professional regulation in place for the lawyers involved. Here's data that we've seen about what kinds of protections are helpful. So I think that's going to be one thing that's, that comes out of this, that other jurisdictions, which is already happening, are going to be looking to Utah uh, to say, how does this work? How do you build it? We've already got a model out there that other jurisdictions can look at, and we'll have evidence to, to show. I think the other thing that it's going to uh, contribute to the world is if we can motivate entrepreneurs and companies and nonprofits and civil society organizations to come in and experiment in Utah right, then they can gain that scale. And all that has to happen is Arizona or Colorado or California or Florida or Illinois or Ontario just needs to say, hey, we kind of like what you're doing. We've, you've built it uh, in Utah. Maybe Utah wasn't a big enough market to, to justify that investment on its own. But these other jurisdictions can pretty easily say, we like that too. You can start supplying that service. And so I think Utah is, is providing an opportunity for those companies and those entrepreneurs uh, to make those initial investments and to explore for themselves, oh, what can we provide at a, at a reasonable price with good quality uh, into the market? I hope we're going to see both of those things. I do too. And that's so helpful. And it demonstrates for our listeners why this story is much bigger than Utah. As important as Utah is, this, this has implications really for the regulation of legal service throughout the United States and, and beyond. Um, a couple of quick uh, more questions before we, we run out of time. You've already mentioned that uh, this is up and running. You have some number of entities that have applied for permission in the sandbox. Some are up and running. Uh, John, what plans do you have? What do you see ahead for the Innovation Office now that uh, you've taken on this uh, role? Well, uh, the first task at hand is to be assessing the applications that are coming in and giving the court guidance and recommendations about what to do with them. And then as we have active participants in, in whosoever sandbox it is, we'll, we'll be monitoring and gathering the data. The participants have maybe a monthly reporting requirement. Some have a quarterly reporting requirement. But, you know, we anticipate a data flow uh, coming from those people. In addition, to Jillian's point, we're looking for innovators, and innovators in all spectrum of models. So far, we haven't had a total non-lawyer come in and tell us that they want to do something with just AI, and they don't have any lawyers connected to their model. Maybe somebody will. We hope they will. We perceive that as probably a little riskier thing than something that's got lawyers you know, embedded in it. But we'd like to see those different models and have a chance to, uh, to try them out. So that's the, that's the heart of what the Innovation Office is charged with doing. This is so encouraging to hear you just say that. It's wide open, but subject to very careful standards that you will apply, you and a balanced set of people that have been appointed by the court to, uh, to populate this Innovation Office and all subject to the supervision of the Supreme Court of the state. So there's plenty of reason for the public to be confident that their interests are being looked after, but yet the door is open for ideas that are better ideas, and, and let's see where we go. All right. 
One of the other elements of this story, and I mean, it's a great story, and it's so encouraging. One of the elements of the story that is noteworthy is that you got it done, that you, you got reform approved. A lot of states have tried this and not been able to get past their own infighting, really, within the bar. So how did you, how did you do this in Utah? Who wants, who wants to go first? I think John is the person to take that one. Well, I think all three of us have a take on that. I, I would say that Dino and I were inspired by Jillian, and and we collectively have a, a passion for this that has carried us forward. We had a great team, including Jillian and many other uh, notable folks from across the country participating. We still have a great team. Uh, Dino has been a wonderful advocate with his colleagues uh, on the court. They have shown courage uh, in the face of, you know, lots of question marks and a willingness to really give us the space. And, And analytically, we're just looking for space to try things. You know, and that's, that's, I think, become an important element of this. Um, other for regulatory reform has been, let's just change it and let ABSs happen. And, and that's a lot more daunting to people than let's, let's give space for that to be allowed and watch it and see what comes of it. So, uh, you know, I think the Utah court system is part of our, part of our solution here. I think we're right-sized. We don't have elected judges. We have appointed judges. We have a common judiciary across the state. There's not this balkanization within the state, and it gives us that environment. And the other piece, and I'll stop at this, is we've really had good support from our bar. Uh, You know, our bar leadership has been ultimately willing to have good conversations with us about this and, again, support the idea that we should at least try things. You know, we, we both heard Jillian's speech, but if it were not for a bar leader, a bar president, um, saying, I recognize the interest of the public comes first. And I'm going to put those interests first, and I'm going to lead, right? I'm going to be the thermostat, not the thermometer. This doesn't happen. John will not take the credit that he deserves for it. But I think it's what we're seeing in other states as is, is well, right? There are leaders within the bar community um, in those states where this is starting to take off. And that is not a sufficient condition, but it's certainly a necessary condition, I, I think, um, at least initially. And I don't know, Jillian, maybe you have a different take than I do. No. So number one, moral courage and conviction. I think from uh, both Dino and John on this and and their colleagues in the bar uh, and on the bench, you have to let those numbers sink in that we started with. And as I say, I have been saying for many years on my colleagues, others, Becky Sandifer, Deborah Rohde, many of us have been saying, look, it's just shameful that as a profession, we allow this to continue. And yet somehow the politics and dynamics of the bar and the relationship with courts. So I think there's absolutely no way you end up here without the the moral courage and conviction that both uh, Dino and John and, and colleagues showed. I think the other important move here was most of the discussion about changing the rules and alternative business uh, structures, ABS that John referred to, which the UK introduced uh, and the law in 2007, introducing in 2012. For many people in, in the conversation in the U.S., 
for many lawyers in the conversation, that kind of meant, well, you're just going to take away the rules and then it's just a wild west, right? Who's going to protect consumers against the scam artist and, you know, the person who's taking their money and giving them poor, poor quality service. So I think a key move here is this was not just change the rules. In fact, I'll be honest, when I made that proposal in 2018, I said, okay, all these years trying to get lawyers to change their rules, forget it. Just build a regulator because there's a legitimate consumer protection question here. Build an evidence-based, risk-based regulator that will license and regulate oversee alternative providers. And that was the key move. It was really the vision from Dino and John, I think, to say, hey, you know, we should really expand that uh, much more broadly and and, uh, get everything onto a level playing field. And let's shift from regulating by belief or bias or stereotype, right? Let's get away from saying, oh, shareholder ownership, non-lawyers, we're going to distort the behavior of lawyers because the shareholders will be whipping them to, you know, cut corners and, and fall down on their obligations. Instead of regulating from that stance, let's regulate from, you know, the stance of, okay, nobody's got services right now. Would it be helpful for them to have a paralegal who's done a thousand forms uh, last week, <laughs> um, you know, fi- you know, I mean, think about what's happening right now with the pandemic and the rules around Ralph, you, you mentioned at the beginning, the, uh, what I sometimes call this law thick environment. Okay. We've got rules all over the place about benefits you're entitled to eviction relief. You might be entitled to, we lawyers know how complicated all that stuff is going to look. It's, uh, you know, gobbledygook to a lot of, uh, lay people, well, would it be helpful to have somebody who's just been trained to really understand what's in those forms, explain them over the phone, over a chat window? Could we build a little AI that would, you know, give that and connect it, of course, it, it keep track of it. But I, I think that's the, um, the key thing was just, again, moral courage, conviction. We have to solve this problem. Dino said more than once, I'll die on this hill. Um, I'm glad he didn't have to. And the shift to regulate on the basis of facts, regulate on the basis of evidence, regulate on the basis of risk. So that, that's the brilliance of this. You've set up a situation, and you, you reference a regulator, and I'm, the time hasn't permitted us to get into this, but that's what the Innovation Office is. It's a regulator subject to jurisdiction by the state Supreme Court. And for our listeners in, in almost every state, the state Supreme Court has the ultimate authority on these things. And, but we've got a new regulator here. So you can decide situation by situation whether this is something that is safe for the people of Utah, not decide in advance, but decide by the facts in front of you. And over time, we'll have a lot more experience. So we're running out of time here. I want to ask Jillian one last uh, question, and then I'll give you each a chance to, if there's anything else that I haven't asked you to say that you'd like to say. But, but Jillian, looking ahead now, we have these all the rest of the states in the District of Columbia and other U.S. jurisdictions. What's your uh, prognosis? Are we going to see more reform in anywhere in the near future? I, I think we are. The conversation has shifted in the last few years in really a very surprising way, to be honest, uh, after having been in these battles for a very, very long time and seeing a lot of task force and studies and so on just you know, uh, end up with recommendations not going anywhere. Arizona has already made a move. They've, uh, I believe, adopted changes to their uh, professional conduct rules, and they are exploring 
uh, the regulatory sandbox idea, looking specifically to the Utah model. Uh, California, um, after some very uh, strong uh, lobbying efforts on both sides, managed to uh, rescue their effort to explore sandbox. And frankly, there's a real thriving legal technology industry. I talked to a lot of these legal entrepreneurs. Many of them come in wanting to help the ordinary person and then discover they have to pivot and use their AI instead of reading eviction notices. They got to use it to review commercial contracts because that's the only market they can operate in. Um, I think that uh, it'd be fantastic if California quickly follows suit. Florida's looking at this. So I, I'm optimistic. I, I, I think it's going to go fast because we kind of, it's a little bit of the emperor's new clothes, right? You kind of pulled back and said, look, it's safe. It's not crazy. You can do it. You can make people better off. So I, I think that I'd like to think the dominoes can follow quickly. Well, I'm with you. I hope that is so. It should be so. So, John, uh, Justice Himonas, Jillian, anything else you'd like to say to our audience before we close? Well, I, I've learned never to follow Jillian uh, or John or Rebecca Sandifer because nothing I say will sound nearly as intelligent as them. So I, I, I'm going to just shut up at this time, Ralph. Well, that, that just shows you how politic-wise and ultimately sensible Justice Simonis is. I'm not quite that sensible, so I'm going to say one thing. This is not at the expense of lawyers, okay? This is, I truly believe, to the benefit of lawyers. It is a false dichotomy to say finding these solutions that involve other people other than lawyers is somehow another going to be at the expense of lawyers, you know, I, there, are, there are opportunities here. We are driving cost curves down. We are talking about growing the demand. We're talking about opening whole new areas about where the, the skills of applying, of being a lawyer can be applied. And to me, it's no different than the blockbuster thing. You know, we have Netflix and Amazon Prime now, and that's how we get our, our content. But there's still plenty of producers and there's still plenty of actors and there's still plenty of writers and, and those fundamental skills that are the same type of things that lawyers do are going to be there. And, and, you know, doctors didn't somehow know they get run out of business because the healthcare industry, you know, stratified and, and there's lots of different service providers. So I would not be, you know, I don't know that I'm a person with all sorts of moral courage has been alluded to, but I would not be advocating so strongly for this if I, if I thought it was going to be at the expense of our profession, because I, I believe very strongly in the qualities that lawyers bring to the table as well. Let me just, as an economist, endorse that. I think in many ways, lawyers have been acting against their own interests for many, many years. When you talk about 80 to 90% of the population navigating their legal problems alone, that's massive demand. And the problem is our existing uh, delivery models are too expensive because they're highly inefficient. I think about um, our recent graduates, uh, young people from law schools, for example, how much better that they would now have an opportunity to become an employed lawyer at a legal provider. Somebody else is running the business. They're just getting paid a salary. Think about all the people, the lawyers who would prefer and have a happier life uh, to be on salary and let somebody else worry about, about technology and and billing and, and so on. I, I have never doubted for a moment that five years into this, uh, lawyers would look back and say, what took us so long to figure out this is where our own interests lie as well. Well, that's a beautiful place to, to wrap up. I, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for taking the time 
to participate today. We'll try to get this message out to as many people as we can. And one thing that strikes me listening to this conversation and having gotten to know each of you in the last few years, really drawn by this this issue that that uh, that, that you worked on in Utah, Utah couldn't have had a better trio. And and I and you weren't alone. And I know that. And I know there were lots of other people who worked on this. But you're all. Uh, so principled about the way you look at it, and you're so clear. So I, there's not a single person who will listen to this podcast and not follow everything each of you said, and and I'm sure that helped get this uh, through. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to say a couple of things here as we close. As I said right at the beginning, this really is a very important development. And as we have said throughout this conversation, we have a genuine crisis on our hands in the United States in access to justice. And Jillian said it is shameful, and, and it is. And, and I have no doubt, as someone who's been a lawyer for 45 years and practiced under these rules, I have no doubt that part of the problem, only part, but part of the problem is the restrictive and prescriptive nature of the way we limit who and how Uh, methods are available to our people to deliver legal service. It's not the only part of the problem, but it it is a very important one. And what makes it so compelling is it's one that can be fixed. Every state could do what Utah has done. If it has, as Jillian said, the courage and the conviction and the vision and the leadership to get it done, this is a, a step of progress that we can make. One of the other realities of this that is, I think, important to everyone in our country is that the people who need the legal service that they're not getting the most have no voice. There's no lobbying group for them, and, and they don't have means, and so there they are. And, and, and there they are without legal service and without a champion. And this is one of the things I want to close with. I want to encourage everybody who's listening to us to get involved in this issue. This is not an issue for lawyers only. Any citizen, any resident can become involved in each of our states in the discussion about how we regulate legal service and how we address this crisis in access to justice. There is no single right answer. This answer is pretty compelling, as we just heard. But there's no single right answer. The issue isn't do one thing or another. It's find a way to change the rules so they don't block access to justice on the part of our people. Permitting these outmoded rules to continue to inhibit affordable, quality legal service to our people is inconsistent with our American dedication to justice for all. And I hope everybody will get involved. So thank you all for listening. If you liked it, which you should have because these people were great. If you liked it, please, uh, please uh, note us on Google or Spotify, wherever you got your podcasts. And please recommend us to your friends, including those who are not lawyers, because we have messages here. We'd like to communicate with people who are not lawyers. And until next time, this is Ralph Baxter for Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.